What's up, ASM? We have arrived. We've made it, because if you haven't noticed on our video today, we're in a little bit of a different location. We've got a TV up behind me. Uh, we're in the auditorium, so we have made it. Officially, ASM has arrived. Uh, we're in our series in the Gospel of John, and our big idea that we're going to look at today is right here. Everyday followers of Jesus recognize Jesus as King Savior, and Lord. Now, sometimes we can approach a passage uh, like this, like uh, wondering why should I care? And maybe it's because sometimes we open our Bible like this. It's been a while since you've been in God's word, since you've been in the practice. And, and so you're flipping through, just looking for a place to start. And all right, we're in Ezekiel chapter seven now. And as you begin to read, you wonder, why do I care about this particular passage? And beautifully in our passage today that we look at in John chapter 12, we're going to find that John at the end of this discourse in chapter 12, he's going to tell us why we should care. He's going to give us a pretty compelling why actually. And so let's look at that together. If you have a copy of God's word, I need you to grab it, open it up, press pause now. If you need to run and grab it from another room, come back and join us. All right. Now, here's where we're going to land. John 12, verses 47 through 50. And this is what it says. The words of Jesus. If anyone hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world, right? God the Son came to save the world, but there is a judge. And before we get too uh, out of control here and start thinking like, well, you know, I knew it. I knew that God the Father, he's just a judge. He's just there to catch me doing wrong. One, let's, let's take it back a notch because we do so much wrong. If I followed you around for a long enough time, I'd see it. God doesn't really need to catch you, okay? We all know it, but let's see what happens here in verse 48. There is a judge for the one who rejects me. Now, why does he judge? Because we've rejected Jesus and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them on that day. For I did not speak on my own, but the father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the father has told me to say. See, there is a judge, but the judge, you guys, is so gracious, so loving that he sent someone not only to warn us of this impending doom, of where our sin leads, of where living life on our own terms will take us. He also sent that same person of Jesus, God in the flesh, to pay the penalty on our behalf. And so Jesus is asking us here, what he's telling us is that we cannot just passively or flippantly claim to follow him. Action reflects decision. We looked at this when we looked at our series in James, this concept that we have to have action and put feet to our faith. And I want to be very clear that our faith is not actions in and of itself. We're not saved by our actions, but our actions reflect decision. Simply uh, put, this is an example that I want to give you guys, is 
I love hockey. It was really hard for me to move to Washington because y'all don't have any NHL teams, right? And I lived in California where I was never further away than about a 45-minute drive from any professional hockey team where, where I lived in California. Okay? Now, they weren't always great, but now the Kraken is coming. It's like 41 days at filming time right now till we have our expansion draft. It's like a little sick that I know that, right? But the Kraken are coming, and I'm so excited about it. I was like, I want to be a season ticket holder. Now, I believe that being a season ticket holder is, is a good thing. It's a good idea. I'll enjoy it. But you wouldn't actually believe that I was a season ticket holder until I could show you some kind of proof. And that's what our actions do for our faith. They are the proof that a decision has been made. Now, I am a season ticket holder along with Brett Angelo and Chad Hoffman and a bunch of other people from Alderwood and my parents. Now, we all went in together, but I'm a season ticket holder. My belief translated to some action that shows that I made a real decision. And what Jesus is going to show us is that it's not enough to hear. We are people who are called to keep his words. And we need to follow him wholeheartedly. The judge is, according to Jesus, for those who reject him. And what does it look like to reject him? Let's look at verse 48 one more time. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. And that acceptance goes beyond just hearing it and going, okay, that sounds good. It's going to a point of keeping, which is what we'll find later, keeping those words, doing something about them, living out faith in Jesus. First thing I want us to see as we go backward in time, which is this is a little different. We start at the end of our passage and we're going to go back. Jesus is the king we need, but rarely the one that we want. Jesus is the king we need, but rarely the one we want. Let's open our Bibles again. We're going to look at John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, and what you can put there, glorified, means he was crucified, died, and resurrected, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb, raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. What's getting them nowhere? Their plot to kill him is not looking great at this point because he's gaining popularity. Their statement here seems a little over the top, but let's explain it in a minute. Look how the whole world, like literally the whole world, has gone after him. So we need a little background to this passage. Jesus has just brought Lazarus back from the dead in Bethany, a short walk from the city of Jerusalem. So there's a buzz circulating about Jesus. He's done something that no one else has done. 
and he's just had a dinner party with Mary, Martha, and the newly resurrected Lazarus. Mary anoints Jesus's feet with perfume, and many people come to see Jesus and the man that he raised from the dead. So our context in our actual passage here, there's some things we have to understand. Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a young donkey. There's palm branches being laid down in front of him. People are waving palm branches around. They're shouting strange words like Hosanna, because we don't use that word really, right? This is called a, the triumphal entry. That's what we usually refer it to. And I want you to understand that if you're familiar with this story, Jesus's triumphal entry is not the first triumphal entry that Jerusalem has ever seen. There have been many hopeful conquerors and overthrowers of Rome who hope to lead the Jewish people out of Roman oppression, who ultimately have ridden into Jerusalem in a very similar fashion and have died at the hands of the Romans. And they were likely seated on a horse, a symbol of war. Jesus, however, rides in on a donkey's colt, a symbol of peace. Also, what does Hosanna mean? I mean, literally translated, it means save us now. Save us now. They're crying out to Jesus. They're pleading with him. Save us now. From what? Roman occupation and oppression. So you have to remember that as the Jewish people read the Old Testament and they looked forward to the Messiah, they were looking forward to a king. And for them, king meant conquering. And king meant that obviously Rome would be dispelled because you can't have dual kingship. We're not going to have Caesar and our king. No, our king is going to come and establish his rule. They call him king, and they are right. Jesus is king, but they are wrong about what kind of king. And we know this because there's some significance in the palm branches. If you've been in church for a long enough time, you've probably done a craft on, on Palm Sunday with your, your, your kids' ministry class, and you, you wave the palm branches. Maybe you're even part of like a little pageant or something in the main service or something. But what do the palm branches mean? Why palm branches? Why not, other than they just didn't have them there, why not evergreen boughs? right? What's the significance? The palm branch is actually the national symbol of Israel at the time. So this is a very political situation in which Jesus is walking into, but Jesus is not going to be the king that they are thinking of. So what do I mean when I say that Jesus is the king we need, but rarely the one we want? See, just like this first century audience, just like the Israelites in Jerusalem, we, need, we often tend to attempt to mold Jesus into our image or the image that we want him to fill instead of being molded into his image. And we want Jesus, a Jesus who fulfills our desires and what we think he should do. We want a Jesus who fits our political affiliations. We want a Jesus who champions our personal social agendas. We want a Jesus who dislikes those who treat us poorly, continue to fill in the blanks. And not all those things are bad, but I think we do them in the inverse of the way they ought to be done. We ought to look at Jesus and say, what do you care about? What is your heart? And then allow ourselves to be informed in the things we care about to be informed by those. What we often do is we get really amped up about the things that impact us and the things that we want to champion and the things that we think are important and we look for ways to make Jesus fit those. See, and I think we often look back into the biblical storyline and begin to shake our heads in judgment like we would have done better, we would have gotten it. But would we? Would we have been any different? See, none of these things, again, is inherently wrong, but the equation is inversed. 
they're not allowing Jesus to inform their desire. They're allowing their desires to inform what they think of Jesus. And the writers of the New Testament seem very clear that we ought to become more like Jesus, not the other way around. I'm going to have some scriptures up here for you. Just a, a quick go through. 1 John 2, 6. Whoever claims to live in him, being Jesus, must live as Jesus did. They have to live like he did. It's this action of following faith. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, the Apostle Paul says, Be imitators of me, of me as I am of Christ. Only follow a leader in your life in so much as they follow Jesus. What Paul is really advocating for is follow Jesus, be like him, and as much as I am like him, you can follow me. Paul was actually probably the least likely person to claim perfection. But what he's saying is, as you see Jesus as you see me being formed in the likeness of Jesus, follow me. See, this section ends with the words of the Pharisees. I said that they were being a, a little bit of, a, they had a little bit of an overstatement. Is it's, they said, look how the whole world, the whole world, really the whole world has gone after him. It is a bit of an overstatement, but they are beginning to see something and a change, a shift that is taking place that we're going to uncover in the next section of verses. Now, this next section, we're not going to cover every single verse because it's a lot to unpack. We're actually going to focus in on verses 20 through 26. But our point that we need to look at is this, that Jesus came to save all people. And you might have been in church long enough to think like, duh. But let's really unpack what we might think about that. See, all through John's gospel, we've heard Jesus saying, the hour has not yet come. That actually starts with the wedding in Cana, where he addresses this issue of the hour not yet coming with his mother. Because he knows as soon as his miraculous ministry starts, people will take notice. And that is the beginning of him heading toward the cross because people will seek his death. And this continues throughout. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. And in this passage, we're going to find is the hour is the culmination of Jesus' ministry in his death, burial, and resurrection. And all of a sudden, Jesus is going to make a crazy statement. He's going to say, the hour has come. See, we're going to be in this, uh, this final week of Jesus' life because John spends a lot of time on it, what we call Holy Week, the week between Palm Sunday and the resurrection. And we're going to spend the, almost all summer going right through this week of Jesus' life. But this is where Jesus has come to, this point of that he has come to save all people. So, verses 20 through 26. And there's a bunch of other things. Go ahead and read for yourself uh, verses 27 through 35. But let's just focus on these verses. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. There's some other crazy stuff that happens in this passage. There, God speaks from the heavens. They think it's thunder. And then it kind of ends with this thought uh, at the very end. When he had finished speaking, Jesus hid, left and hid himself from them. But I want to talk about the concepts that are presented in just this short passage. Is First, he says the hour has come. Finally, the hour is here. Jesus keeps putting it off. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. Now it's here. But it's interesting when it comes. Why does it come? See, it comes when the nations begin to seek him. And you're going, wait a minute, Curtis. That didn't say nations. Okay, we got to understand something here. When the Greeks come to seek Jesus, what we need to see there, Greek is also just another euphemism for saying Gentile. Anyone who is not Jewish. The nations, people outside of Israel, outside of Judaism are now seeking the Savior. They go to Philip, likely because he was the disciple who had a Greek name. And then we need to understand that the Jews viewed their coming Savior as one, again, who would liberate the Jews from Gentile oppression. They likely did not think of the Messiah in terms of the way that he is described in Genesis 22 to Abram. Abram is given a promise that his line would be a blessing, not just to his people, but to all the nations. Israel has always been meant to be a light to the world. And the Messiah has come. The hour has come when the nations begin to seek him out. He has this concept that he, that he explains too of a kernel of wheat that dies and becomes numerous. We see this all the time. I know Washington, you guys are famous for apple trees. If an apple falls to the ground and it dies and it actually begins to take root, it has many seeds that can become multiple apple trees, which can then become a whole orchard of apple trees, right? When we understand this idea of multiplication, what Jesus is saying is that through his death, burial, and resurrection, he is going to reach many people. He's going to reach the nations. And following Jesus is demanding. We have to give up what we want for what he wants. He says we have to give up our own life in order to attain eternal life. It's our foreshadowing of what it means to follow Jesus as Lord in our next session. And what it means to follow him as Lord, very simply, is that he is the boss present day, we need to understand something. This would have been astounding to a Jewish audience that Jesus would declare that he will draw all people to himself. And we have a bias as well. And we need to be honest about that. We have biases on who we share the good news of the gospel with. And maybe I'm alone in that, but I don't think I am. We tend to gravitate toward people who look, think, and believe like us. But Jesus didn't come for those who most closely identified with his nationality who most closely identified with his socioeconomic standing. Jesus came for all of us and thank God for it. He declares that he will draw all people to himself when he is lifted up. And then he gives us a charge in Acts 1.8 when he departs from this world. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, people who look like me, Judea, still close, and Samaria, that's uncomfortable, don't like them, and the ends of the earth. 
Jesus is saying, I've come for everyone. Which brings us to our next point. If Jesus calls us to follow him in such a way, following Jesus is not a private affair. It's not something that we do individually. There's an individual aspect to following Jesus that you need to own your own faith. And yet at the same time, all throughout scripture, what we see is this is a community effort. And it's also not something that is done in private. We're going to look at the the last section here, which is verses 37 through 46. So if you have your Bibles, again, open them back up with me. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. He's talking about the fact that the Jews aren't following. They've rejected Jesus in large and now the nations begin to seek him. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. Catch this though. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith. For fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as the light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Again, incredibly rich piece of scripture that we do not have time to completely unpack. But think about this. When we believe something, it spurs us to action. Think earlier about my Kraken tickets thing, right? Belief or faith is knowledge applied. It's when we take knowledge and we allow it to transform our actions in such a way that we can prove that we really believe that. Jesus spends his discourse here kind of fleshing that out. Belief in Jesus, really following him means living faith out loud. This is covered extensively in our last series we did in the book of James. This does nothing to eradicate, to nullify the reality that salvation is through faith alone and what is done by Jesus at the cross and the resurrection. It simply helps confirm it as solidified in our lives because when belief takes root, it transforms us. It's noticeable according to the scriptures. So what keeps us from this kind of faith? I would submit that especially for you as a teenager, maybe for you as parents, if you're watching this, it is likely the same thing that kept so many in Jesus's day from living it out loud. Let's look again at verses 42 and 43. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved human praise more than praise from God. See, there's a, there's, there is acceptance in following Jesus, I think, in our world today. I actually think that we get a little bit too uppity about like we're being oppressed and Christian rights are being violated. Like we need to take a look at the third world. We got it pretty easy. 
right? We're not being persecuted on the daily, most of us, for our faith. But here is our fear and where it comes in. And here's what the world tells us. Here's what the world around you will tell you. You want to follow Jesus? Jesus is right for you? Cool, follow Jesus. Just keep it to yourself. I don't want to hear about it. But that's not following Jesus. That's, not fo- that's following the comfort that we want to have for ourselves and for those around us. We don't want to make people uncomfortable. And, and, and Jesus and the gospel in and of itself is very uncomfortable for an unbelieving world. It says, you don't have what you need. Only Jesus can supply it. Luke 9, 26, Jesus has some choice words about this very thing. He says, whoever is ashamed of me in my words... The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. See, we have a fear of loss, a fear of being unpopular, a fear of being seen as weird. And Jesus gave everything for us. I am not trying to minimize your fear. They're real. Your fears are real. But I'm just saying, isn't Jesus worth the risk? Do we love the praise of men more than we love the praise of the Father? Are we more afraid of the judgment of men than we are loving the praise of God? Jesus gave everything for us. Is he not worth that risk? Galatians 1.10, Paul says these words, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, let's be real. If you want to be popular, don't be sold out for Jesus. If your goal is to be the most influential person that you've ever met, probably don't follow Jesus. But if you want to be someone that people trust, someone that people know loves, someone that people feel comfortable going to because you embody who Jesus is, follow Jesus. So we have the truth of the gospel. And again, we, we, started with our closing this week, verse 47 through 50, Jesus declares that following him is an active process. It's lived out. It's not done quietly. It's not done as a private affair. It's not done solo. We'll see as we look at at the breadth of scripture and how it's lived out in community. It's not simply enough to know who he is. As we look back at our series in James, in James chapter 2, we're informed that even the demons believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord And they shudder. They're afraid of the reality. But we are those who hear Jesus' words and keep them. It transforms us because everyday followers of Jesus recognize Jesus as king. They recognize him as savior. They follow him as Lord. So, your questions as you maybe discuss this as a family or with your maybe some friends why does any of this even matter? What does the concept of Jesus coming for all people look like practically for you? And what might need to change in your, your world, in your worldview for that to really take root? 
And what might it look for you to follow Jesus more openly? I think when we ask that, this kind of question, sometimes we think like, well, I've got to become this major evangelist or I, I need to get a megaphone and a soapbox and I got to gather all my supplies. One, don't be that guy. I've seen him outside the Mariners games. He is not a good witness for Jesus, all right? Okay, what I'm asking you to do is think baby steps. What might it look for you to follow Jesus more openly to not hide your faith like the people of Jesus' day? Guys, thanks for being with us. See you next time.